What song? Who loves that song? All right. Well, good evening. It's lovely to be with you on this Palm Sunday. And they're going to do a Palm Sunday preach today. Um, who has seen the film Spartacus? That man's seen it over there. Who hasn't seen the film Spartacus? You wicked people. Actually, you're slightly, you're, you're slightly better than the morning service people. I think about two out of about a hundred had seen it. Okay, here's the deal. Spartacus is a rebel Roman slave, and um, as rebel Roman slaves were wont to do, he revolted against the empire, and he gathered around himself a number of other rebel slaves, and the whole attempt being really to sort of over, overthrow the system, overthrow the empire, but they failed, and there comes a point in the film where they've been, basically they've been beaten, and they are chained up again, a big crowd of about uh, two to three hundred of these slaves, and they are surrounded by the Roman soldiers, and... Uh, It's like being back at school, isn't it, eh? Is there something you want to share with all of us, Joshua? So, so they've been rounded up, all, all, all chained up, and the Roman soldiers are there, and the, the Roman centurion or whatever, he says, the emperor and his mercy has granted that you all be spared um, as long as you show us which one either take us to the corpse or to the living person of Spartacus. They want the leader. And at that point, Spartacus, who is still alive and he's part of the group and he's sitting there, because they don't know who he is. They know that there's this Spartacus who's led these rebel slaves, but no, none of the Romans know actually who he is. It just looks like the rest of the slaves. So they say, look, take us to Spartacus. Which one of you is Spartacus? Expose him, point him out, and the rest of you go free. And everyone sits there awkwardly silent and Spartacus' face, you can see what's going on in his mind. And then suddenly this look of resolve comes over him. And he stands up and says, I'm Spartacus. But at the same time, the guy next to him stands up and says, I'm Spartacus. And then the guy on this side says, I'm Spartacus. And then someone at the back stands up and says, I'm Spartacus. And then in the end, they all do it. And uh, it's a bit like that with Jesus sometimes, in the sense that you think to yourself, will the real Jesus please stand up? There's a lot of confusion out there as to who is Jesus. And depending really on what books you read, or what God TV channel you watch, or what God radio station you listen to, or you will come up with all kinds of different conclusions. Was he a, uh, an insurrectionist, or a revolutionary, a political activist? Was he a pacifist? Was he, was he God? Was he just a teacher, miracle worker? Who is Jesus? What, 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 you know, and some people, they'll pick up on one thing about Jesus and they'll create a whole persona around it. And you really, the only way you can really know who Jesus is is through Scripture, through the Bible. Because really, historically, there were four men who, who took the effort to write good historical accounts of this man Jesus' life. Now, there were other historians of the time, Josephus and others, who referred to him in brief. But there were four guys who really made the effort to say, no, we want to really uh, do a good life story, uh, accurate biography of Jesus. The first was, his name was Matthew or Levi, previously a tax collector turned disciple. Now he wrote his account for the Jews primarily. 
And we know this because all through his gospel, he constantly refers back to the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, saying Jesus did this to fulfill this scripture. Or Jesus said this to fulfill this scripture. Because what he's trying to do is trying to convince the mind of the Jew. The Jew is saying, prove to me this man is the Messiah. Prove to me this man is who you say he is. And so Matthew's saying, fine, look, everything about his life, his actions, his words, fulfills what the Old Testament scriptures said the Messiah would do. Then you've got Mark. Now, it seems like sort of a common agreement that what happened was is that Mark really acted as a scribe for Peter, one of the leaders of the disciples, who, who gave his account and Mark wrote it down. Now, Mark's gospel I would reverently describe as a crash-bang-wallop gospel. It's, it's the shortest. It's everything's immediately, just as this happened, instantly, it's suddenly, and it's very, very fast-paced. It's the easiest one to really get your head around. If you, uh, maybe you've never read the Bible before, maybe you're not a Christian, you want to find out about Jesus, Mark is a great place to start, um, and you see a lot of the power, authority, and the action of of Jesus there in that. Then you've got Luke. Luke was a Gentile, a non-Jew. He was, doesn't seem to have featured, doesn't seem to have been around when Jesus was around for his three-year ministry. But then we begin to read of, well, we read his writings, which um, Luke and Acts is what Luke wrote. He wrote two books. Acts is really Luke 2, the sequel. He's back. Um, and, uh, and, and really we see that Luke seems to have been around from around the time of Jesus' ascension, that sort of time. And, and he's very meticul- a very meticulous man. And he, says, he particularly makes the point that he got, got around to the eyewitnesses and tried to create an orderly account. If you're a meticulous, orderly person, Luke's the gospel for you to start with. And then we got John's. Now, John, he was, one, he was known as the beloved disciple, although that's what he called himself. So it's kind of a funny one, isn't it, really? It was the, you know, I mean, but it's, see, obviously, you know, we believe it, it, Scripture is true, but it's kind of ironic that he's the one who calls himself that. It's not a very English thing to do, is it? But it seems that John and Jesus had a particularly close friendship, and, um, and, and, but John's account is completely different from the other three. Not in the sense it's inconsistent or contradictory, not at all, but the style is completely different. Um, some of us as people are more moved by poetry than we are by prose. John is the gospel for you to start with. It is, um, it is a poetic, symbolic, um, mysterious, and yet thoroughly authentic account of Jesus' life. So just to help you, really, just before we start, just to, just to understand about uh, the life of Jesus, how to get into the real Jesus, get into the Bible, and read the four accounts and see how they dovetail together beautifully. But we're going we're gonna to look today at um, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. And we're going to look at a glorious story. And it's a story really that begins the climax, if you like, of Jesus' life. The climax of his ministry. It all really starts to come to a head now when he enters Jerusalem. And really, uh, for some time before this, he'd set his face towards Jerusalem uh, uh, with really quite a frightening resolution. His disciples were uh, concerned and somewhat scared at times. Um, Something about even his manner in going to Jerusalem, he predicted he was going there to die. He was going there for opposition. He was going there to be rejected and spat upon and other things like this. And so it was a a, a very emotional time on the way. Wonderful miracles. Bartimaeus gets uh, healed of his blindness. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, gets saved. It's glorious stuff. And then we reach this story. Jesus has just told a parable. We're going to pick it up in Luke 19, uh, verse 28. I've got those funny coloured dots in front of my eyes. Again, funny spotlights. I'm too old for this game. Okay, let's read this together. And when... Look at this. This is crazy. Trying to escape the green dots. Um, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Beth- Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying... Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied 
on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you'll say this, the Lord has need of it. Now, who of you would like this job? It's like me saying, there's a really nice four by four around the corner. Pop over, <laughs> go around and get it for us, will you? Uh, if anyone asks what you're doing, just say, Steph needs it. <laughs> you know, because you go in there and you're thinking, man, a lot, you know, what? And it's, it's one of those moments. I don't know whether some, some theologians would say that Jesus arranged it. He'd had a word with these guys beforehand saying, there'll be two guys coming. Da, da, da. If they ask, Lord, it's me. And, and he'd sorted it out. Another way of looking at it will be a little bit more like in Star Wars. Um, Star Wars 4, A New Hope, um, which is actually Star Wars 1, if you know what I'm saying. But, yeah, yeah, okay. No, there wasn't, there wasn't a loaded comment. Simply, that was the one that came out first. All you people that are very passionate about Star Wars. But there's that moment where Obi-Wan Kenobi and uh, Luke Skywalker, R2-D2 and C-3PO, they need to get into somewhere, don't they? And there's these stormtroopers there. And, um, you know, they're not letting them in. And then, and then Obi-Wan just says something to them like, oh, what's the exact quote? Come on, you techies or whatever, trekkies or whatever you're called, Star Warsies. Johnny. That's it. These are not the droids. Ah, fantastic. He says, because the stormtroopers think, are these the droids we're looking for? And they're getting all a bit, you know, walkie-talkies and all that. And Obi-Wan says, these are not the droids you're looking for. And the stormtroopers go, these are not the droids we're looking for. And it's this kind of like, wow, that's amazing. And Luke Skywalker, that's amazing. I wonder if it's a bit, if it's a little bit like that, really. It's like, the Lord has need of it. Okay, you know, I don't know, I don't know what happened, but because it sounds like you think, well, the Lord is needed, but who's the Lord, you know, this is my donkey, but these guys, that's what, I mean, I'm not, try and put yourself in this position, you've been sent to go and get a donkey that's tied up, it's in the middle of a town, there's people around, I mean, what would you do, so walk up, you know, what would you do, would you just walk up, bold, I don't know, but anyway, so they get there, and, uh, and it, that's what happens, so uh, they, um, these were sent away, and they found it, just as he had told them, and as they was untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? <laughs> no. Uh, and, they said, and they said, The Lord has need of it. Uh, and, that's all we, and they brought it to Jesus. So we don't know what happened other than obviously it wasn't, there wasn't a scuffle. You know, and we let, they let them go. And, um, and they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along... They spread their cloaks on the road. Now, what's going on here? I want to just look at, what is this all about? What it's all about is this. It's Jesus, for the very first time in his ministry, saying, I'm going to declare myself to be the king. Now, bear in mind, there was another time where Jesus had performed some extraordinary miracles where they tried to make him king by force, and Jesus actually hid himself away. So it wasn't... It was, this wasn't the sort of thing Jesus did. In fact, in Luke's gospel, Luke emphasizes Jesus is a man who loves solitude, who loves going away to the deserted places, who loves to, he's seeking God. He's up early and he's away by himself. And the, 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 even the disciples have to look for him. Where were you, Lord? Because he's very much, he's, he's a man of solitude. That's how Luke betrays him. And suddenly Jesus is getting this scene together where he's going to declare himself as the king in Jerusalem. Now you say, well, hold on a minute. How can you put that and that together? How can you say that Jesus want getting hold of a colt, a colt from a village down the road, and, and, and getting people to put coats on the floor, is Jesus declaring himself as king? Here's how. In the Middle East in those days, that is how kings often when they paraded traveled. They would travel on a colt, a donkey's colt, but one that had never been sat on before. And they would, that's how, that is part of the way they would travel. And to us, it seems kind of like, it's a donkey, you know, it's more like 
donkey rides. It's, it's, um, the beach is, you know, there's nothing regal about it in our time. It's kind of weird. In those times, it was a very royal thing to do. It's Jesus saying, no, I'm going to now declare myself to be king of Jerusalem, king of, um, king of all sorts. We'll find out as we go through it. But I'm going to declare myself to be king. Also, Jesus was saying, I'm going, to, I'm going to show that I'm the king who fulfills prophecy. If we look at Zechariah 9, verse 9, up on the slide here, it says, this was written hundreds of years before Jesus came. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, so Jesus is saying, I'm going to fulfill that scripture. Okay? That one was prophesied. This was a prophecy about the king of Jerusalem. As I, as I get this colt that's never been sat on and, and, and choose to ride into Jerusalem, I am making a declaration. I am the king of Jerusalem that Zechariah prophesied about. Now, this humble thing, let's just look at this humble thing because we, I think we often think humble and mounted on a donkey. Oh, Jesus is a real humble king. Why? He went on a donkey. Yeah? I went on a donkey. Man alive. The other kings would have been in chariots and stuff. No, no, no. Seriously, I'm not joking. The kings would travel on donkeys. So what's, why, why does it say humble then? Here's why. Zechariah here is juxtaposing it. He's juxtaposing the humility against riding on a donkey. He's riding on a donkey. He's the king. But he's humble. Now, in what way is he humble? Because he's riding on a donkey. He's regal. He's royal. He's saying, I'm the king. People are throwing their coats down. So it's like, man, you know, it's, it's, he's, he's, he's saying, I'm the king. What's humble about that? Well, there's nothing particularly humble about that. So what's humble about him? Here's what it is. Let's just go together 2,000 miles away, 2,000 years ago, to the Mount of Olives and travel in that crowd. Okay? Because we are told that the whole of the disciples were there. Now, please, if you've ever watched one of those Jesus films where, where there's like, Jesus entering into Jerusalem on the donkey and there's 12 guys going, yay, trying to make a lot of noise. It wasn't like that. There were thousands that followed Jesus. Okay? Thousands. Definitely with different levels of commitment. But we know that when Jesus ascended, just before he ascended to heaven, there were 500 they have a significant level of commitment that we spoke to and commissioned. But we know that before that time, before things turned nasty at the cross, there were literally thousands. Remember, we fed the 5,000. But there's just 5,000 guys. The crowd is probably up to 20,000. They were the kind of numbers. So we've got a huge crowd here. I mean, if you imagine if it was 12, the, the coat on the road thing would have been a disaster. You put your coat down, by the time it's gone over, you've got to pick it up, run around to the front, and stick it down again. It's a nightmare. So when you've got thousands... Okay? It's just glory, it's palm branches, it's all kicking off. So in what way is he humble? Well, let's just look who's in the crowd for the moment. Because just over there, you know that, you know that lady, don't you? She was caught in the very act of adultery. Caught in the act, dragged into the temple. You know, what did Jesus say to her? Well, first of all, the people that dragged her in, they wanted Jesus to really pronounce some big judgment on her. And so Jesus said, well, look, what, may, what, maybe whichever one of you is about sin... You throw the first stone at her. And then one by one they all went away. And then Jesus looked up and he said to her, none of them condemned you? She said, no, sir. He said, neither do I. Go your way and sin no more. What a humble king. If there was anyone that could have condemned him, it was Jesus. What a humble king. Over there, who's over there? Well, that guy. You know about him, don't you? No one would go near that man. Why? Covered in leprosy. Outcast, ostracized. He fell at Jesus' feet. And not only did Jesus heal him, do you know what? He actually touched him. He touched the man. He said, I'm willing, be cleansed. He's a humble king. That lady over there, 
Oh, she looks happy. Well, you know her. She was ill for 12 years, hemorrhaging, couldn't stop bleeding, spent all her money on doctors. We call her Risky Rita. Because she sneaked up to Jesus, she touched his cloak. Like that. Not knowing what would happen, because in those days, that was, with her particular condition, totally not allowed. Jesus felt the power of healing go out from himself. She felt herself healed in an instant. He turned around, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? She admitted it was her. He said, your faith has healed you. Go your way. He's a humble king, you see. And you've got a group of unlikelies all around Jesus. You see that Mary Magdalene? Seven demons. Cast them out of her. Look at her now. Look at her dignity. Look at her purity. See her over there? Well-known, infamous prostitute. Oh, you should have seen what happened. She met Jesus, couldn't stop weeping. She washed his feet with her tears. And then she walked away with dignity because he forgave her sins. Humble king. This is Jesus. Something about the man's manner. He's on the king, he's, he's on the donkey, he's regal, he's royal, but look at him. You could approach him. Look at the compassion in his eyes. He's a humble king. He's a humble and a glorious king. And I want to say this to you. If you think a Christian, a follower of Jesus, is someone who somehow has attained that, or there's somehow there's something about them that's, well, they're a Christian because they're good, you've misunderstood the message. You've really misunderstood the heart of the message. The heart of the message is not that. Jesus himself said, it's not the, it's the sick who need a doctor. I've not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. If you're a sinner, you qualify for the love and mercy of Jesus. Don't get into that mindset of saying, I don't fit with these Christians because they're all so Christian. And I'm not. What are you talking about? Let's just clarify, what do you mean? Do you mean, because, you know, let's not judge by appearances. Is it that they're just, you know, I don't know, maybe their shirts are funny? Okay? Forgive them that. Forgive me that. There's more to me than that. What are those people that are so Christian? Well, what we're actually saying, we probably don't really know quite what we're saying, other than I feel like a bit of a misfit. I feel slightly out of it. Do you know what? Everyone in that crowd following Jesus would have had that moment. Everyone would have experienced that in some way. Why? Because we're all the same. We're all sick. We all need healing. We're all sinners. We all need forgiving. We all need Jesus. And he's the great and humble king who will accept you, who will receive you. And he won't just say, yeah, I love you, but you're not quite the same as my other crowd. So you just kind of stay over there. He will draw you right in. He will love on you. He will affirm you for who he's made you. And he will release you into his purposes. He is glorious. He's a glorious, humble king. So, he's on a donkey. The coats are going onto the, onto the road. Uh, back to the original slide, please. Let's carry on. So, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Here he is. He's... Oh man. Don't you love Jesus? He's the weeping king. <gasps> He's saying to Jerusalem, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you 
when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. At this point, Jesus actually says, do you know what? If you had received me as your king, you would not have been torn down by the Romans. You see, in AD 70, Jerusalem was completely sacked. Jesus says, if you had received me as your king, that wouldn't have happened. Now, I'm not at this stage saying that it all went wrong. God had a sovereign plan and it all absolutely, it was God's foreordained plan that Jesus would be rejected by Jerusalem, would be crucified, so that through his death on the cross, every nation could be reconciled to God. Absolutely. And yet, that does not deny the fact that if Jerusalem at that point had received them as their king, they would have been spared what happened to them. But we know they didn't. We know, we know that days after the rejoicing and the cheering and the palm, palm branches, they're shouting out, Crucify him! Such is the uh, fickleness of human nature. It's tragic, really. In it all, God and his unimaginable sovereignty works out his purpose. But you've got to see the, 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 you've got to see the sadness in it all as well. Now, I want to just take a few minutes to articulate a few things about the kingship of Jesus to you to help you understand what kind of a king he is tonight. I want to show you that he is the prophesied king. We see it from Zechariah. He's coming on a donkey. But it's another, slightly more mysterious, a much more ancient prophecy back in Genesis. I want to just take you to, it's kind of, it's kind of a little bit, um, what's the word? Obscure in some ways. But there's enough in there for us to just hang on to and say, wow, this is about Jesus, even though it was prophesied thousands of years before he came. So let's look at Genesis 49. Now, at this, at this point, Jacob, who's the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, he gathers his children together. He's on his deathbed. He gathers them together for the blessing. He gets to his first son. Now, his first son had slept with one of, one of Jacob's kind of wives on the sly and thought he got away with it. And so Jacob, at this stage, condemns him for right in front of his brothers and says, you know what, you're, you're the eldest. You're meant to get the great blessing but he was unstable as water. And then he turns to the other sons and says, he went up on my couch, meaning he, he slept with my wife. It's just horrendous. Then he goes to his next two sons, Reuben and, Reuben and Simeon. I think, no, no, sorry, that's Reuben. Simeon and Levi, who had performed an act of great violence and had caused a lot of trouble for Jacob and his family. And uh, really, but Jacob hadn't punished it or anything like that, but now he's on his deathbed and he says, you know, you two can't be trusted. You're violent. You're out of control. And as a result, you will not be honoured as you should be. Then we get to the next son, Judah. Now, Judah, the name means praise. And he says this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Now we've got the word Judah and lion together. Does this remind you of anything? It might remind you of Revelation 5, verse 5. I don't think it's up on the slides. Oh, yeah, actually it is. Alex, can you just find that? It's, it's maybe the next one. On the, yeah. One of, this is a picture in heaven uh, from Revelation. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. There he is. The root of David has conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He's, so, so, so back to the other slide, please, Al. So Jacob's prophesying over his son Judah, but he's actually starting to speak about one who will come from the tribe of Judah thousands of years later. The saviour, Jesus Christ. The scepter, now the scepter is something the king would hold, a sign of his authority. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. 
and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Jesus calls you to obedience today. He has every right to because he is the prophesied king. He's the prophesied Messiah. When Jesus calls you to obedience, it's different from me calling you to obedience. Please just know that. If I say, obey me, you say, why? I've got nothing to say. (laughs) Just, it feels good. (laughs) I've got nothing to say. There's no authority, there's no reason why you should, you know. No, okay? But Jesus is different. Why? He is the prophesied Messiah King. He's God's chosen one. He is God in the flesh. So, so it is God's plan that people would come to Jesus and out of love and trust for him would obey him. So let me just call, call you to obedience today. If you're a disciple, obey Jesus. Okay, please trust him. When you trust someone, you obey them. Trust him. He knows better. Generally speaking, older people know better than younger people. Generally, not always, but a, they've been around the block a bit more. Let me just say this. Jesus is really ancient. He's the ancient of days. He knows all things, okay? Trust him, obey him. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Let me urge you, obey him. He knows better than you. He knows better than the magazines, the gossip magazines. He knows better than the adverts you see on television which tell you what you need. He knows what you need. You need him. And you need to know him. And you need to put him first and die to yourself and then you will find true life. He deserves the obedience of the peoples. It's really simple, but it's glorious, okay? Now look at this, this is lovely. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Who's the choice vine? Who's the true vine? Jesus. Now this is getting a bit obscure, but I think, I mean, it's talking on the one level about an age of plenty. Okay, the, in, in, in an age of, of the Messiah's rule to come, it's going to be so glorious. Vines full of grapes are going to be just so everywhere. You know, instead of tying your donkey to like a, a humble little post, you just tie it to the vine. Well, a donkey might pull it over, no problem. There's 1,500 other vines over there. That's really what it's talking about. But I just feel there's something wonderful prophetically here of this donkey, this donkey's colt being, 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 um, being bound, being bound to the, to the true vine. And I want to just look at that. I felt as I was preparing, God prophetically just highlighted this to me. It's back to that awkward situation where the poor disciples have gone to get the donkey. Why are you untying the colt? The Lord has need of it. Do you want to be bound to the true vine? You know, the Lord has need of you. In one sense. He can do anything without you. Okay? But in another sense, he says, I want you. I need you for some stuff I want to do. The Lord has need of you. In order to be bound to the true vine, you need to be untied from other things. There it is. It's a prophetic thing. I'm not saying that was the original intention of Luke, but I felt God just highlight. You need to be... Uh, you can, imagine, imagine if they'd gone and said, we need a donkey. And, they, and, and the owner said, well, can't Jesus just come down here and just sit on it? It wouldn't be quite the same, would it? Can you imagine? Jesus, <laughs> they said no, but they said, you, it's okay if you want to go down and... Sit on it. <laughs> Bit disappointing, really. Okay, fine, you know. Okay, well, you know, it's silly. It's stupid. It was for a purpose. The purpose was what? Glory. We're going into Jerusalem and we're declaring this is the king. God has got glorious purposes for you. Okay? Glorious. He wants to catch you up in what he is doing in the world. He wants to catch you up in the mission of rescuing people from, them, from their sin, from their lostness, and redeeming them into lives that are full of purity, hope, healing, joy, worship. That's the mission of God. Okay? And he wants, he, wants, he says, come on, I want you to be bound to me in that. Well, what have you got to do? You've got to untie from certain things. 
You've got to be untied. Maybe you're in, un, you're, in, you're, you're in what I would describe as unholy relationships. There's some relationships you're in, and actually it's tying you up. It's like you're tied to another person, or an institution, or even a way of thinking, and it stops you saying, Jesus, you are fully my Lord. And it's like every time you want to go, it's like, oh, you're being pulled back, because you're stuck. You need to be untied. It's ever so important. It's a vital prophetic point the Holy Spirit wants to make tonight. For some of you, it's institutions. I don't know why. That's the word I'm getting. As I'm on my feet here. It's like you have some kind of loyalty to some kind of organisations and certain things that actually what it does is it keeps you from really following Jesus wholeheartedly. I want to exhort you tonight to be untied from it. Why? Because the Lord has need of you. The Lord has need of you. Okay, so where are we? Okay, he's washed his garments in wine. It's the image, isn't it, of Revelation 19, the rider on the white horse with his robe dipped in blood. You know, it's the whole thing. Very often what we're told, the imagery of um, Jesus coming and he treads the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God and, and, and it, the, the whole wine being symbolic of blood there. It's a messianic prophecy. He's the promised king. Okay, I've, I, I've, I've demonstrated that now. I want to demonstrate something else to you now. Here we go, right. Okay, so he's, he's moving along and the crowds start uh, um, praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they'd seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, when I say to you, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, does that little song, that little refrain, remind you of any other refrains in the Bible? In the Gospels? In Luke? Anyone? Right. But it's not exactly the same. We have the heavenly host at the birth of Jesus appearing to the shepherds, saying, glory to God in the highest and peace on... Here we have the earthly host declaring glory to God in the highest and peace in heaven. What's going on here? At Jesus' birth, the angels are saying, peace on earth. Why? The king's come. You've got the king with you now. He enters Jerusalem, symbolizing his death and return. And the earthly host is singing, mate, peace in heaven. Why? He's coming back. It's a glory. Wherever Jesus is, there's peace. Can I hear an Amen. There is deep peace. I'm not saying there aren't difficulties. I'm not saying there aren't trials. I'm not saying there aren't things that go wrong. But there is a peace that goes beyond understanding. That's the way the Bible describes it. The peace of God which surpasses understanding. You're going through thinking, I shouldn't be feeling like this. (laughs) I shouldn't be feeling like that, but I'm feeling like this. And you feel a bit guilty. I feel so peaceful. What's going on? It's the peace of God. What is that? It's the presence of Jesus. He brings peace what does Jesus say? I'll give you peace, but not like the world gives. The world says, have it, take it back, have it, take it. Jesus says, have peace. Now you can let yourself be robbed of that. You can let Satan come in and lie to you, believe his lies and you lose your peace, but Jesus will never take his peace from you. I'll say that again. Jesus will never take his peace from you. As a believer, you have full rights to peace the whole time, internally. Whatever's going on around you. Now, I know that's not easy to stay in that place. I know that. We have temperaments that go up and down. We have circumstances that sometimes go crazy. We have satanic attack. But I know that. But what I'm saying is this. Where Jesus is, there is peace. If you're with Jesus, you can, you can say, hey, peace is my inheritance. Hallelujah. He's the king of heaven. And he's the king of peace. And then, penultimately, some of the Pharisees in the crowd, as they are wont to do, wanted to calm things down. Pharisees love calming things down. 
They don't like it when it gets too, it gets too excited. They start using uh, phrases like, it's getting a bit emotional, <laughs> as if it was a sin. <gasps> Not emotions, you serious? Oh no. Well, we better repent. We better repent of our God-given emotions, hadn't we? Please. Yeah. I don't know if you're talking to me or the Pharisees, but... Right, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I love this. Jesus said, well, you know what? Even if I did, and even if they obeyed me, and even if they shut up, guess what? The stones would start. Why? Because he's the king of creation. He's the king of creation. Creation knows. Now, I'm not a pantheist. Pantheists believe that, you know, all of creation is God and somehow all he's got is worse. No, 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 no. It's one God. He created it all. Creator, creation. And yet, creation pulsates with the life and glory of God. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And somehow the creation knows. Now, is Jesus being figurative or I don't know, but I love the picture. You can imagine it, can't you? Teacher, rebuke disciples. And Jesus is like, mm, okay, stop it, disciples. Mm, okay. And then suddenly, what's that singing? Ah, it's the stones. You know, it's glorious, isn't it? It's amazing. What's going on here? It's creation saying, he is our king. And even though people in their stupidity will wander and rebel and put us under the curse of futility with their wandering rebellion, we acknowledge he is our king. And the Bible says the whole of creation can't wait for the day when the sons of God are revealed. Why? Because when we come into our freedom, then they will come into their freedom. Creation itself will be birthed into glorious freedom of new heavens and new earth. It's a beautiful thing. He's the king of creation. And then finally, he draws near to Jerusalem, weeps, and basically says this to them. You didn't, you didn't get it. You missed your day of visitation. And I want to just end on this. I want to just say... He's a humble king. He's a self-declared king. He's the prophesied messianic king. He's the divine king. He's the king of peace. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of creation. But is he your king? Is he your king? And I want to say it to every human in the room. And I, you know what? At this stage, I'm not really even concerned whether you've got a badge on that says believer or not believer. I'm just saying, I'm asking to ask yourself, is he your king? I tell you, he's a good king. He's a compassionate, forgiving, patient, glorious, holy king. And he calls you to be one of his subjects. It's not very PC really, is it? It's not very egalitarian. He calls you to come and bow the knee. He calls you to come and, if you've never have before, then for the first time, say, Jesus, I forgo my rights as the mini king, queen that I've made myself. I've realised that I have lived a life of folly and sin and I just want to follow you now because <laughs> I recognise you're the true king. And the, Jesus himself said that anyone who comes to him like that, he won't cast away. He will not cast you away. He loves you. He loves you. <clears throat> He died for you. His robe was dipped in blood. Why? Well, what blood? Well, in one sense, you, you could say definitely his own blood. He made peace on earth and in heaven through the blood of his cross. He reconciled all things. The Father reconciled all things to himself through the blood of Jesus' cross. So you can be brought back to God and hallelujah. So I want to say that. And then I'll just finally say this to you, Christians, believers. Is he your king? 
I'm not asking how many notebooks you've got filled up with sermon notes. I'm not asking how many Christian CDs you've got. I'm not asking how many Bible weeks you go to. I'm asking is, are you a king? <laughs> do you trust him? Are you, are you saying, Lord, you know what? It's not about me anymore. I want to get in on what you're doing. Um, I'm willing to follow you. Now, here's the thing with following Jesus. It kind of goes, it, if you follow Jesus, it kind of works the same way for you that it did for him. And it kind of went like this. It kind of went death, resurrection. <laughs> Right, and there's that, that, that's the deal. You, you go through daily death and daily resurrection. Okay? Daily death to self and daily resurrection. You think, oh, that was much better than living for myself. You know, it's daily revelation of that. But it costs and it hurts, but it brings joy and life and fullness that cannot be found anywhere in this passing age. So I just plead with you, my brother, my sister. Join with me in trying to work out as best we can how to honour this king. And how to worship this king so that the stones don't have to. Yeah, if they want to, great. But not because we're not, eh? Let's, let's, let, what a perfect opportunity as well to just gather back and love him, praise him, honour him, worship him. And when the Pharisees start shouting in your ear, calm it down, you say, leave off. Right? And you get on and give him the honour that he deserves. Yeah? Remember when we looked at David dancing before the Lord? Before the Lord. It's before the Lord. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. There's praise and honour and give him the glory. Our great king. Yeah? He's marched into our lives, hasn't he? And set himself up as king and we say, hallelujah, be Lord of our heart. Praise God. Let's do it. We're going to take the bread and the wine as we worship and praise. And um, as I normally say, just to clarify again... We're celebrating the death of Jesus until he returns, okay? Because at the cross, that's where we find our forgiveness, our reconciliation, our hope. And so please, if you're a believer, come, take the bread, take the wine. Let's, let's honour him and encounter him in that. If you're not a believer, become a believer and then do that. If tonight you're just, you're just not quite ready to take that step yet, then we'd just say, please just refrain from taking the bread and the wine. Um, it's for those who have come and put their faith in Christ.